Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Christopher Beekler. Hey, it's Chris from Quizbase.com, coming to you from Providence, Rhode Island. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Rainy Provo. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we have a special guest. Sorma, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Sorma. I work as an open web advocate for Google, usually in London, but this week I'm just dialing in from Munich in Germany. Cool. Why Munich? I'm currently here working with the WebAssembly team on, you know, figuring out what are we going to do? What, where is WebAssembly gone? What is our plan, basically? Nice. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. We brought you on today. I was looking through the prep documents and there was a whole bunch of stuff in here about web workers. There was something yeah, so, in there about Redux too, but meh. <laughs> so it's been a, a consistent thread throughout all my work for almost two years now that I'm always trying to see how we can move work away from the browser main thread. And I, I guess I should I should start by making sure that we that everybody who's listening knows what I'm talking about. So when you do a website or a web app and you write JavaScript, that JavaScript runs on the so-called main thread, which is the thread that does, you know, your DOM, your layout, your style, your paint. And because that your JavaScript needs access to the DOM and to the styles, it needs to run on that same thread. And so since the inception of the web, that it's all been running there. Originally, browsers even had only one thread. So all your tabs had to share one thread, which became a performance problem at some point. But now yeah, we're we hate point. sharing on this show. <laughs> so now that we are uh, reaching a point with the web where it's becoming less, I mean, it's been not about documents for a long time, but we keep pushing the boundaries of going more into like apps actual user interactions, you know, visual polish effects, doing actual processing on the browser, in the browser, like image processing, audio processing, all these things are becoming possible on the web. It becomes hard to do that in a way that allows a single thread to still be responsive for, let's say, user input. Someone wants to scroll, click a button. And so what I've been looking into for a long time now is to how do we bring multi-threading to the web. Because if you look at stuff at the other platforms like iOS or Android, since their very inception, they have 
done the opposite. They have always run user code on a different thread and they also have the main thread, but it's only for UI. All your logic and processing runs on a different thread, so it doesn't affect the main thread, but not on the web. And I think that is a mistake that needs, not a mistake, but that is something that is, we are, have now resolved that we need to address. And actually JavaScript has had a primitive to do multi-threading for a long time, which are called web workers. They've been around since IE10, but never really been used because they are awkward to use and it, it gets weird with tooling. It changed the entire mindset. And so recently I've kind of gone onto the blogging offensive and just like written down why I think it's important. I started with a blog post called, when should you be using web workers? And the answer was pretty much always. And of course there's nuance and I know it doesn't apply to everyone, but in the end I'm looking at native apps and why they do it. And it all applies to, to the web as well. Then the last blog post in the series was an example, basically, where it took a Redux app and moved Redux off the main thread to a worker because state management is inherently not UI work, or at least not tied directly to the DOM or any main thread only APIs. So that seems like a pretty easy thing to do. And it kind of was. And that blog post got a decent amount of traction, which was great, but also kind of surprised me. And I guess, I guess that's how I ended up here. And I, we apparently wanted to talk about that a little bit. I'm a little curious then. I mean, are, are there, I don't know. I, I haven't really done a whole lot with web workers. And I think a lot of that just boils down to the fact that not a whole lot of people that I'm talking to are using them. And so I'm not really, you know, I'm not really driven to, to try them out. I don't know. Has anyone else on the panel done anything with web workers? I have actually, at my very first job, we were looking at a situation where we had to read in, oh man, this was a long time ago. <laughs> I think it was a CSV file. It might've been just like a JSON file. I don't remember. It was one of those types and it was like a file upload, but we wanted to do it all client side. And so we looked at web workers then, and this was, this was like four and a half years ago. So it was definitely pretty clunky then. Yeah. Christopher, AJ? I have not worked with them at all, honestly. It just hasn't been something that's come up with my particular set of contracts and everything. I played with them once, but didn't really do much. I am curious. I thought that it was like the story of... It, it sounded like it's kind of difficult to use them because of how isolated they are, and it's kind of difficult to get debug messages out of them and stuff like that. I'm not really. I'm actually not really clear on... When the appropriate time to use them is aside from aside from a test that has heavy processing and can be easily serialized in and out with the input and the output. I know like the big problem that we were facing, at least if I recall correctly, was just like passing state back and forth or data. Interesting. All right. There's so many things in there that uh, I yeah <laughs> I want to address. All right, let's start with when should you be using them? That's the first blog post that I wrote that I just mentioned. And the answer was pretty much always. And of course, there's a bit more explanation that I can give around this. And the the statement, the, the whole mindset that I have kind of discovered over time thinking and working on this is the main thread is an inherently bad place to run your code. If you think about all the responsibilities that the main thread has, whenever you click a button, it's the main thread's responsibility to look up all the event handlers, look through the DOM, bubble up the event, call all these JavaScript functions, then run your JavaScript, look what they do, update the, the DOM, restyle, relayout, repaint, push it to the compositor, do that 60 times a second, ideally. It's a lot of work. 
so we've been for a long time, I think many developers are kind of aware of this rail pattern that gives you a time budget that you have to do amounts of work. So for example, in the rail budget, you have one second to load. So if a user clicks a login button, you have about one second before psychology kicks in and user gets impatient. For if you want to like visually respond to user interaction, you have about 100 milliseconds for it to feel instantaneous to the user. And you have 16 milliseconds per frame so that the animations that you might have running stays. So that is, these are time budgets. Now you might be developing your app and you know, you're maybe on your phone or on your laptop and you stay perfectly within your budget. You have maybe even some headroom, all is great. Problem is that you have no control over what kind of device your app will be running on. And we all know that like, we all you know, probably own pretty decent phones, if not even flagship phones. Like I know I have a Pixel 3 XL, I know some of you will probably have an iPhone. These are incredibly powerful phones compared to the average that is out there in the world. Like if we talk about, there's also a difference about talking just about the average phone in America, the average phone in Europe, and the average phone in the world. The point is that there's all kinds of devices out there with differently powered processors, differently powered GPUs. So you can't actually tell how long your piece of JavaScript will take. Even like the shortest event handler or shortest piece of code for a click might take a millisecond on your phone, but might take 20 milliseconds on a feature phone that that are kind of coming back in India right now. And so with that, I'm kind of at the point where I think, okay, so there's no way for you to write code that runs well on every device. Ideally, you run your code somewhere else and that's where workers come into play. And now the fact that the majority of the people on the panel, let alone of the listeners, probably haven't used or maybe even heard of workers is not something to feel bad about. Like it doesn't make you a bad web developer or uh, ignorant or anything. Like these have been around and nobody has been using them. Mostly because originally they were heavy, they were expensive, they were hard to use, uh, they were hard to debug. Lots of these things have changed. They've gotten cheaper in terms of memory overhead. The debugging story has gotten better. Um, There's now libraries and tooling around this. So we're really just starting to embrace workers as a pattern for web development. So again, nobody should feel bad for not having used workers. Now, for me, it's been really like this, this whole thought process of like the main thread is so hostile almost as in a runtime environment because of how many responsibilities they're already there just by default being the main thread in the browser that it really isn't a good place for you to run your code. That being said, UI code, like code that manipulates the UI, so manipulates the DOM or like a framework like React, belongs on the UI thread. Because I've looked into how some frameworks have evaluated workers and they kind of try to move everything off the main thread, even their components. And I don't think that makes sense because the UI thread is there to do UI and it needs to be able to synchronously update visuals and styles. What I'm trying to achieve is that people move everything off the main thread that is not UI. So two things. One, you, you're saying workers. And are you including service workers in that? Or are you only talking about web workers? Oh, thank you so much for reminding me because that's a confusion that comes up every time and I never remember to clarify it. So there is three APIs that sound very similar but are different. There's web workers, which I will sometimes call workers, there's service workers, and there's worklets. I am kind of sad that uh, we ended up with these three names for things that are 
similar, but very different. So service workers are only similar in the sense in that they are a separate thread. For what I'm talking about here, offloading work to a different thread, I mostly do not mean service worker. In some special cases, you can think about potentially like moving image decoding to a service worker, but in the end, it doesn't really make sense. So for the purpose of this topic, I'm only talking about web workers and not service workers. Quickly, worklets are a Houdini invention and are not relevant to this topic and also kind of out of scope to, to explain for this one. But if you're curious, you can watch my Chrome Dev Summit 2018 talk on Houdini where I do explain what worklets are. That was the second question, wasn't there? I was going to have a second question, but I, I lost it already. I'm trying to think what it was you said just before. I do have a question just for people who may not be aware. Um, can you explain what the compositor is? Oh yeah, of course. So we talked about, as I said, we have the main thread where the browser does, you know, layouting, paints, and these takes user interactions, run JavaScript. The ominous painting phase is basically, if you think about your DOM elements as rectangles, these are being colored in by paint. And that often happens by the CPU. But then these individually colored rectangles are pushed onto the GPU and assembled into the image that you see on screen. And this coordination of taking these squares, aligning them and pushing them onto the GPU is the compositor thread. It also takes care of running CSS transitions and CSS animations, which is important in the sense that you can have a completely busy and blocked JavaScript main thread and the compositor is still able to animate. So a CSS animation will continue running even if the main thread is blocked, while a JavaScript-driven animation would, for example, not run if the main thread is blocked. So that's why CSS animations are actually really a really nice performance primitive, and they also save a lot of battery, actually. But that's a different story. But yeah, that's basically where the comp- what the compositor's job is. So you were saying that you do actually recommend that React, for example, as a component framework, run on the main thread, but that parts of the framework, it would be good if they could move it off of the thread and into web workers. Uh, what, what sort of stuff is best to use there? My main example, go-to example for what part of React could be moved off, off the main thread is the VDOM thing. Now, I have to say that I actually don't know much about the internals of React. So I'm talking purely as a conceptual level. So this might actually not be realistic in the current incarnation of React. But if you think about how you have this state object in something like React and you manipulate it and then the state object gets mapped to the V nodes and then the V nodes get diffed so that React knows which part of the DOM to update. These V nodes are pure data structures. They don't have any ties to the actual DOM API and could just as well exist off the main thread in a worker. And so this entire diffing process could happen off the main thread. And then basically only instructions could be sent to the main thread to do the actual DOM manipulation. And that is something that we encountered as a performance bottleneck when we built Prox. So Prox is a Minesweeper clone written as a PWA that uses Preact. But we have found that the VDOM diffing is actually very costly on low-end devices. And we were targeting feature phone low-end devices, the ones without a touchscreen, with a number pad, really, really low power, and we saw that, a sim- I say simple about it, we had a 40 by 40 grid table that the VDOM diffing took up to like 150 to 200 milliseconds, which would block all the animations that we had running. 
And so instead, we moved most of the game logic off the main thread and opted out of VDOM diffing and implemented ourselves for that part to make it run on this low-end device. But if the VDOM diffing had happened off the main thread in the first place, we probably wouldn't have needed to do that. And I thought that was quite an interesting discovery that we had. That being said, I think it, that is kind of a, a niche corner case, or it's, it's an extreme case with that big a table with that many elements or that many states objects, I guess. I think that the first step that people can look into moving off the main thread is state management. And that's exactly why I wrote the other blog post about how, as an example, how I moved Redux into a worker and still maintained everything that React basically kept working the same as before. I think I get the general idea. I guess where I'm a little bit hung up then is how. Like, how how do I move this logic over, right? Do I just write a function and then it's like, you know, function, you know, dot run on web worker or is there more to it than that? Yeah, and that's exactly where I why I think web workers haven't been popular because that is actually not very comfortable in how they currently exist. So there's two problems to this. A, you start a web worker by using the web worker constructor, which is new worker, and you pass in a separate JavaScript file. So you have to put all your stuff that you want to run off the main thread into a separate file, which is the first kind of barrier to entry for many people. Once you wrap your head around it, it's actually very usable. Like it's, 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 it's a pattern that you can get used to. But in when you come from everyday, current day web development, it feels weird to suddenly put it in a separate file. And it's also actually kind of weird to do that with bundlers. Jason Miller and I have both written plugins for Webpack and Rollup, respectively, to make that thing easier and just work automatically. But that those are recent additions to the ecosystem from our side. So that was actually kind of a hassle before. And now that you have spun up a web worker, it's not like you can just call functions or, you know, send objects. The only thing that you have is called post message, which, you know, on the worker, the return object from new worker is a worker instance. And on that worker instance, you can call dot post message and all kinds, you can pass a value into that function and it will appear as a message event inside the worker. And then you can send messages back from the worker back to the main thread. And that's all you got. And that's really uncomfortable because you just sent messages. And now there's basically two ways that you can do. On the one hand, you could embrace a pattern from the 70s called the actor model. The actor model is originally a mathematical model that was kind of popularized in computer sciences with Erlang, where instead of thinking about calling functions, you would send messages to actors and actors you can think of like classes or isolated functions and that works really well but again it's a new pattern to learn and feels kind of alien to it i personally had a lot of fun doing that on the web but it's i definitely see that it's a very weird feeling at first web developers so what i did instead is i wrote a library called comlink and comlink hides post message from you and just gives you the values from the worker as if they were on the main thread, even though they're not. Under the hood, it's RPC, remote procedure call. So it just turns function calls into messages and then applies those function calls on the other side and sends back the return value. I take care of all the the protocol magic that needs to happen there with the library. And so in the end, what you can actually do is you can just put a class in a worker, say comlink, put this onto the main thread, and then on the main thread, you can use this class as if it was there, even though it is not. The only 
implication of this library is that now every function call, what used to be synchronous, is now inherently asynchronous. So a function that would return a string will now return a promise of a string. A function that would give you your state object will now return a promise of the state object because there is just the very inherent asynchronous process of sending a message and waiting for a response under the hood. With async await being available you know, in, in most browsers and also via Babel, it's actually really comfortable. We have been using it in both Squoosh and Prox. Both apps make heavy use of workers and of comlink. And I'm kind of hoping that people will start playing with that more and realizing that with that, the additional cost of using a worker instead of putting everything on the main thread is basically non-existent. It's, it almost changes nothing in your workflow. And with that, there is the, the, the cost-benefit ratio gets, or the benefit-cost ratio gets extremely large because there's almost no cost anymore of, of doing this. The library is also very small. It's only a kilobyte. So it shouldn't really hurt anyone to use this one in, as a benefit, get workers in. Of course, again, there's nuance and details. And for specific use cases, there might be other implications. But in general, I would love for people to try it more and tell me where they're running into trouble or if they're not running into trouble, which would be amazing. So then in the case of state management, do you just put your Redux store into a JavaScript file and tell the web worker to run it? Is that more or less how it works? And then when you pass the message, you pass the message of run this reducer with this value? Yeah, kind of. So I guess that's what my last blog post was about, where I actually use comlink. So you don't even do the message sending anymore, but you just call the... I forgot what it's what it's called, the function, the dispatch. You just call dispatch on the main thread, but under the hood, it is sent over to the worker and then dispatch is called on the worker side and the state changes. I had to do some fiddling because, because Redux wasn't designed to run asynchronously. I had to do some, some magic to make the get state function synchronous, but it's all explained in the blog post and it's actually, I think, only like 10 extra lines of wrapper code to just make that happen. But yeah, you're pretty much spot on. That That is how you would put Redux in a worker. After I published my blog post, there's actually a community member from the React Redux community who productionized that pattern in putting, making a library so you can just basically create a new worker Redux store and it takes care of all the worker shenanigans for you under the hood. And so I'm hoping that people will look at that and uh, play around and see if it works or has performance applications because so far in the apps that I've written and putting stuff in a worker, I've only seen benefits and pretty much never any downsides, which of course won't be generalizable. So you said that everything that's running on the web worker is standard JavaScript that you would expect. It's just the communication protocol is different. So if debugging has been improved, how uh, I'm curious how the process works. How do you, how do you, once you've spin up a, spun up a web worker, how do you interact with it? How do you write code for it? How do you debug code that you've written for it? Is there an easy way to attach a debugger to it or what's the best uh, approach? Yeah, so it, it actually, it, in Chrome DevTools, it just shows up as a, a second scope in the terminal. There's a little drop down at the top where you can switch from your website to now a worker. That's the same place where iframes would show up, for example, as again, separate scopes. The debugging story has become better in the sense, you can just set normal breakpoints. You just go to your source file, say set a breakpoint and the browser will stop when that file, when that line is executed. But the debugging story has also gotten better in the sense that if you are working with low level post message, you can 
step into post message and will basically immediately come out in the message event on the other side. So it becomes a linear debugging process, even though in reality it's asynchronous and pretty much parallel. So that makes it much clearer for you what is actually happening. That being said, there's still many things you could do better. And I'm working with the DevTools team to actually give us better support for visualizing and debugging workers. That being said, I would love to have more people tell me what they want because I I think I'm at this point, I'm in so deep that I have a hard time imagining what people don't understand. Because to me, I've, I've learned so much about how it works in the hood that there is almost no unexpected outcomes for me anymore. And I'm pretty sure that many people who come from probably a traditional threading background where you think about threads and mutexes or semaphores to something like workers where you don't have any shared memory, there's many things that uh, will be very unintuitive at the start. So there, there was two things that come to mind. One is I want to hear how the debugging story is better now. What is the way that you run stuff without it all being thrown into a black hole? So as I said, you, you can, if you go into your sources panel in DevTools, you can see that there is the web page with all the files is loaded. And now there's a separate worker entry. You can expand and see all the files that the worker followed. And you can go in, set breakpoints, and start stepping through that code just as you would with normal JavaScript code. Do console.logs make it into the main console now? Or yes, do I they're all merged. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. So if you can actually just console log in your worker and it will appear in that one terminal tab that you have in DevTools. So that has definitely been fixed for a good while. Now. I don't actually remember that it never was, that it ever not was the case, but uh, I can see how it might have been. I know that Service Worker had the problem at the start that console logs would just not show up. I messed with web workers way back at the beginning and... It was very experimental back then, and it just, I, I didn't see the trade-off um, at the time. Like, I, you know, it was, it was fun, but I didn't, I didn't really feel the value of it, which my, my second question was, uh, to me, it seems like 90% of the work that goes on in a browser is really directly related to the display. I know that there's some things out there like WebTorrent and certain game engines that really do a lot of work and processing that isn't directly UI related because they're, they're doing like logical stuff or um, things using audio APIs maybe, but even the audio APIs, I thought you had to do them in the UI thread. I I don't recall, but most of the stuff that I want to do that's expensive. I feel like I can't do it in a web worker because those APIs and things just, aren't available there. Am I wrong? Is stuff like the audio API and whatnot available in that? Or or do you feel like things like state management actually are heavy enough that it becomes detrimental to, to not have it in the web worker? Okay, so there's again many... You, you are definitely right. The most expensive part that we see in web apps is main thread bound. Like we see that the biggest chunk is JavaScript parsing, JavaScript execution, layout, paint. All these things are what makes a web app look and feel slow and moving stuff to a worker will not change how much paint you do. So you're definitely not wrong. Now there's multiple facets in how workers can still help or should be used. So the worst, first thing is moving stuff to a worker will move some of your JavaScript to a worker. And that means there is less parsing and execution on the main thread. And that means boot up will be faster and you will have 
less of a blocked main thread on the first boot of your app. The other thing is that the whole thing why I want to see people use workers is not because it will make things faster. It will most likely stay pretty much the exact same speed overall, but because it will make your app more resilient across all these devices. For me, it's about that every piece of JavaScript that you run could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. There's so much to do on the main thread for the browser, especially when it has a weaker processor, that the more stuff you can move away, the better. So I'm not saying that state management is super heavy for everyone, but I'm saying is if you can move it away, you should just to give the main thread as much headroom as possible. So like Android phones generally have better multi-core support than, than iPhone, but most JavaScript threads can only take advantage of the single core. Whereas if you've got the nice expensive iPhone, you've got a fast single, you know, your single core is really, really fast and really, really optimized because you're on an expensive CPU. And so for the iPhone user, what you're suggesting, it sounds like for the iPhone user, they won't notice any difference at all. But for the exactly for the feature phone user, for people that have that, that are not living the San Francisco lifestyle, they might be the ones that get the most benefit. That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, Apple has done really smart things with the processor where they have like two powerful cores and a couple smaller, less powerful cores, cores so they can actually parallelize, but actually have like two cores that are really good for the web because these are powerful. And as you say, this is not a benefit for the flagship phone users because the flagship phone users can just run everything on the main thread. They have enough raw power in the device that it just works. And that's the problem that we are seeing that when companies build their web app that these run fine on a flagship and that's why they ship it the way it is. But the second you go to the actual median average phone on the world or even just in your country, the app will feel significantly different. So something that we've been doing is I've encouraged people to buy a Nokia 2. The Nokia 2 is like an $80 phone they can buy on Amazon. It's an Android Go phone. It has the most recent version of Android. It has the most recent version of Chrome running on it. So it can browse the entire modern web, but oh my God, it is slow. And that phone is bought by many people because it is so affordable and actually is decent in terms of what it offers of in features. But its hardware is practically stuck in 2014. So, so you can really feel how slow even what you would consider simple apps become on this phone because they are not being frugal with their users' resources. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So two other questions. Do you see something similar with desktop devices? 
I'm going to be honest, I haven't tested on like low-end desktop devices. Just the average Windows computer, your $300 laptop. Again, I think the advantage here is that you get resilience when the computer is busy on other things and maybe the processor is under contention for okay. processing time that you still feel that the app can be responsive because all the other stuff is running somewhere else. Because when a worker needs to be paused, it doesn't affect the UI of your app. While if you run anything on the web app, then the only thing that can be paused is the UI thread and that is what feels bad. But yeah, I'm definitely, the whole thing this is about, is that it's about resilience for low-end devices. And I'm definitely trying to make people think about the not wealthy people in the world who try to use the web and have an awful time surfing because we tailor the web towards the expensive and most powerful phones that we have. So I, I have a point to make on this. So I'm with you from the perspective that, well, my, my parents who are, are not in the category of super unwealthy by any means, but they live in the boonies. They have the metaphorical log cabin. It's not really a log cabin, but they, their driveway is a quarter mile long. And they, they have satellite internet. So when I go there, I experience the web the way that most of the world experiences the web or most of the people. But on the other hand, to me, it seems like people build websites and web apps because they have a business objective. And typically with their business objective, they're targeting either other businesses with a SaaS product or the more affluent social media hipsters. And so as much as I agree that it would be nice if we made the web more accessible to everyone, I think that most businesses don't really have a good case for concerning themselves with the poorer ends of the population because they're not the ones that are necessarily purchasing that good or service through the web app or the website and whatnot. So can you frame what you, you're trying to do in, in a way that a, a business person that's in charge of making decisions might be able to say, yeah, this makes sense for my business. This is going to help me, you know, increase the ever demonized bottom line. Right. So there's two things I want to say to this. So the first thing is, what I'm trying to achieve with Comlink and similar writing plugins for Rollup and Webpack is that there is, this, I'm aiming to have no cost for developers to use workers. It should pretty much make no difference to them. I haven't obviously fully achieved that, but I think I've gotten fairly close. And there's more things I want to do in, in this area and where you just write code as you usually do, but somehow magically stuff now works off the main thread but I need frameworks to be better at allowing off main thread. And so I need developers to demand that there's off main thread. So that's why I'm trying to raise awareness around the entire issue. But the whole point about Comlink is that it makes web workers enjoyable or even disappear from your content and that just happens automatically. The second part about the, the, the business case is, I don't know if you've ever seen the a typical example in accessibility advocacy, which often, you know, is the same argument is broad in that it's hard to make a business justification for spending time on accessibility, is that 
even the people in your target audience might not be in need of flexibility all the time, but can become in need of it. For example, there's this, this example of a person who, you know, it could be a person that only has one arm or a person that is busy holding a baby and one of them has only one other arm available to use your app. So making your app more accessible will be now beneficial to that person, even though technically that person doesn't count as being in need of an accessibility device. Or if, similar- if we're being realistic... Like the seventy percent of people that are using your app while driving and only have one arm. Yes, don't <laughs> use your app and drive. But yes, we know these people exist, and you know, making buttons bigger to make them easier to hit is both beneficial to those people as well to the people who have have a harder time controlling their fingers to that precision, right? So that and that kind of mindset, I think, also applies to loading performance and runtime performance, where workers can come into play. So as you said, when you visit your parents, you are experiencing the web on a much slower connectivity, which isn't even about runtime performance, but just loading performance. And I experience it every time I go on vacation and I go mad when a certain web app takes ages to load. And web workers, I said, can help you too, because they move the pretty much the less critical JavaScript to a different thread, reduce the amount of code that is needed to get the app on screen, which can be a good mindset to have. It also helps you kind of think about writing better UX because now that every task that you do, or if you move your state management to a worker, you now have to think about what do I need to do if this state change takes longer than expected? At what point do I need to put up a visual indication that I have, that I'm doing something? And putting stuff in a worker will help you force to think about that and make your app have a better UX for these people suffering through your app on bad connectivity. And for runtime performance, it's the same thing where for some reason, you lost your phone and you buy the cheap $8 phone until your replacement comes in. And now you spend a week on this low-end phone and suddenly you appreciate the apps that actually went to the effort of making good use of your device's resources and are being frugal with that, just as an example. And then there is also the story, of course, where making the app run better on low-end devices will increase your target audience. And that is usually something that every app is kind of interested in. I know that some companies specifically and exclusively target, you know, San Francisco, California, the wealthy Western web. And I'm going to have a really hard time convincing those people to, you know, put this work into move stuff off the main thread. But I think that doesn't apply to the majority of companies. I think many companies are interested in in reaching the widest audience possible within their country. And even within, if we just limit it to America, there is a very wide spectrum of performance profiles of devices, both in connectivity and in runtime performance and what the devices actually offer in processing power. I was going to point out that when you're talking about slower cell phone usage, lower level cell phone usage, you're talking about literally multiple billions of people across the planet. That's a customer base for a lot of people. Companies are not necessarily strictly targeting them. The rich Western web, as you said. So it's, you know, it's valuable to provide usable interfaces for billions of people. One of my favorite stories around this kind of thing is where You've probably heard it where YouTube optimized their loading performance and saw their performance metrics get worse. And the reason for that is that because they optimized loading performance, YouTube would now load on 
low-end devices that had never been able to load YouTube before. So in total, they reached more people, but the performance metrics on average went down because so many of these new low-end devices were now able to run the app at all so that they could send the analytics data to see that these devices weren't loading before. So I'm, I'm going to push back on, on this idea a little bit again, because you guys are saying, you know, you know, you get access to billions of people and whatnot. There are only maybe a dozen companies in the world, as far as, you know, come to mind, where they really want to reach everyone on the planet. And those are the companies that are trying to gather everyone's data and, you know, trying to turn everybody into an ad target. I could be wrong, but I think that most, as in 90% or greater, and I would, I would love it if you, you know, push back on this, if you think this is unrealistic, I think most businesses have a very niche target. Like maybe most of our listeners work at Google and Facebook, but I think that most of our listeners probably work at the other 90% plus of companies. I totally believe that there are benefits people will realize when they open things up. I don't know that those benefits are going to be as easy to quantify and make tangible, but I believe it's a good thing to do. Like I personally like to take a little bit of extra time to test things on Windows, to test things on an Android phone, to test things on a Raspberry Pi. I personally like to do that because I like the idea that the things that I create as a developer will reach more people. But from the perspective of companies, I just have a really hard time believing that the most companies will be motivated at the business level to reach these people that don't have the nice devices. Well, how many startups are there in San Francisco that are focused on revenue versus how many are focused on user acquisition? It feels like user acquisition is the principal metric for an awful lot of the web. So if, if that's the main metric, then that's what you want to be focusing on. Yeah, I, if, you're, if you're on social media, if you're a venture-backed social media company, then I think that's absolutely correct because that's how WhatsApp, was it WhatsApp? Is that the one that they even like developed their app for you know, pre-smartphone feature phone type things? Yeah, that's correct. And then they, you know, took over the whole world and then got acquired by Facebook. So, yeah, I 100% agree with that. It, but I think that very, very few businesses are venture-backed social media businesses. I think that that is a minority of the minority of the minority. I think there's so many more businesses that are either B2B or doing things like um, TaskRabbit, Grubhub, etc., where you're really catering to a specific market that has a product that they want or a service that they want. So as I said, I, 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 I'm, I can't provide hard data on this, which is kind of my bad. But I think I know that even within America, the performance spectrum is very wide. Like shitty phones exist in America and they are being used. Um, oh, I've used them, I know. <laughs> I think that's actually, that's, that's a decent amount of user base that live on these phones. And secondly, my advocacy in general is, you know, it's probably heard the most in the Western world, Europe and America, but it is very much targeted also at the companies in India because these people, they face challenges. Their, their performance spectrum of people in the, in, living in India 
is so uneven. It's incredible what they actually managed to do with those constraints. Like some people live on half 2G all the time. They literally leave their phone on for 20 minutes, walk away and come back to load a maps interaction, for example, because that's just all they got. They have all kinds of phones, all kinds of performance spectrums, and they want to target every one of these. And I want to help them just as much reach all of the audience as I want to help the people in America and Europe. What I'm saying is that I want that the companies in America and Europe also look at these performance patterns and could reap benefits, especially if there's almost no cost associated with them. But I totally hear that you say, as, as, as I'm, I'm aware that it is a harder sell to do for the Silicon Valley companies. I don't mean to be, I like the concept of social good. I practice social good to varying degrees and things that I do. I just wanted to provide a little bit of contrast and balance and see if I could provoke some thought outside of social good as to, you know, mentioning social media apps, I think was, was perfect that, you know, that's brought up. I think it's super valid, but if I can push for something where you can start thinking as a pragmatist for the medium sized business, like how does this help that person? If you've got a use case for it, like I want that to be brought to the surface because I could be wrong, but I think the majority of our listeners are probably working for medium-sized businesses that are doing B2B SaaS or uh, doing smaller niche-type areas of development. I just feel like I, I don't think it's strictly a social good issue. Uh, if you look at the the largest company in the world by revenue is Walmart, who have made all of their money targeting lower-income customers. And I so. wish Walmart would make their website usable. <laughs> <laughs> all I mean is that there's value to customers other than strictly the ones who can drop a thousand bucks on a phone. Yeah, I think I think it is use case specific. But is there anything else that we should have covered that we haven't talked about with web workers? Is this harder to do with frameworks? Because it seems like a lot of people are using Angular, React, or Vue, or Svelte, or something else. Is this harder to set up with those as, than it is to just run it with JavaScript? Yes and no. So I feel like you can make use of them with most frameworks. I know that I, I'm not, I don't know much about Angular, but I've heard Angular people say that workers are actually a really good fit for their services pattern. I've used them with Svelte and it, you know, it's again it's for state management and it's reasonable. And as I said, I think most of the frameworks belong on the UI thread because they do UI management for you and do the entire DOM operations. That being said, I feel like doing it efficiently is very hard right now, mostly because lots of tools are very much have this assumption that everything is available on the main thread and values can just be shared. And with a worker, that is not possible anymore. You can't just have a global variable and access, access it from both sides because it doesn't. there is no sharing between workers and main thread. And I can't blame them for having this assumption baked in because that's how the web has always worked. So for example, Create React app is just now looking at supporting workers at all, which I discovered when I tried to use the React Redux sample, which is based on Create React app. And I had no way of, I didn't find a good way to actually add a worker to that because the tooling just wouldn't allow it. So there is a way to go. And I'm still trying to figure out how to make that case. I've talked to some of the React people and they, as I said, they have done experiment with workers, but I believe that they have 
chosen the wrong approach to that evaluation of web workers. I kind of would love to chat with them and try again, so to speak. But I also want developers to see the value and see what workers provide and when they're good to use and create a demand for them so that better apps are just happening by default. Because that's really what it's all about. I want all the tooling that we have in the ecosystem to be to give you, to make you have success by default, to write a good app by default. And I am very much convinced that this is part of it, especially if you don't even have to think about it anymore. If I look at iOS, for example, with Grand Central Dispatch, where you just write your code in a task pattern, every kind of piece of code is just a click triggers a task, or you want to schedule a piece of code that is a task. And then you can just basically set one bit, does this need to be on the UI thread or not? And you can attach priorities to tasks. And that's it. That's how it like magically runs off the main thread on iOS. Now that pattern doesn't directly work on the web because as I said, we don't have shared memory and you know Swift or Java does have that. But I think we, think we can still make that work. And that's kind of where what I'm going towards. I have a uh, a very quick sort of UX question. So you said uh, when people are using web workers on slower devices, they tend to have really the app is taking about the same amount of time to do whatever it was going to do, but they have a better experience because the UI and the paint processes are happening. So is it just a question of they may experience like a longer loading spinner than somebody on a faster phone because the phone is still taking time to process, but the app at least feels responsive instead of just hanging there? So... If you could take the same app and you have it, everything on the main thread and state management off the main thread, for example, these two versions of the exact same app, every action should take the exact same, pretty much the same time on the same phone. Just the UI stays responsive in the off main thread version. Comparing a low end phone to a high end phone, yeah, the high end phone is going to be faster because that's sure. what high end phones do, right? Like they're faster and stronger. But the benefit is that in an off-main-thread architecture world, you can still slide around the site nav. You can still scroll or you can still draw with your finger if it's a drawing app. I mean, some use cases for workers are you know, really obvious. They're kind of like slam dunk use cases where you, in Squoosh, we do image compression, which can take any amount of time depending on the size of the image and the processor power. So that kind of makes sense that you might still want to be able to zoom around in the image and inspect the artifacts or inspect certain colors while the compression is going on in the background. So if you ran that on the main thread, that would just be pretty much impossible or very, very hard to do because you would have to chunk your work to into like small little bits and bobs to always give the browser a chance to ship the next frame in between. Gotcha. Thank you. All right. Well, let's go ahead and head into some picks. Uh, Surma, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, mostly on Twitter, Das Surma. I also have my blog, which is dasur.ma. So Das Surma with a dot. I do plan on blogging more about workers. So if, if this did catch your interest, subscribe to that or hit me up with questions anytime. That's what I'm here for. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Christopher, do you have some picks for us? 
Sure, I've got one this week, not tech-related at all. People may be familiar with the YouTube channel CinemaSins. Uh, they do the everything wrong with whatever movie videos. They are controversial in the world of movie criticism because some people think it's very facile, but I've always enjoyed them and not taken them very seriously. They don't take themselves very seriously, and they have a podcast where they talk about movies in a much less negative light, well, sometimes, which I've been enjoying since its inception, and I'm just going to give it a quick plug here. It's called The Sincast. Uh, you can find out more about it at cinemasins.com slash sincast. It's three dudes. They all live in Tennessee, and they like to talk about movies. And if you like movies, it's a fun listen. Nice. AJ, what are your picks? So I was able to rescue my GameCube from my parents' garage, and I found out that the GameCube, the original one, if you got one of the first ones, has a digital video out port on the back. And there are a number of devices available to give you clean, crisp, 480p, that's digital DVD quality HDMI. And because 480p is still supported by most digital TVs today, because DVD players are still supported by most digital TVs today, you can play most of your GameCube games on a, on a digital screen instead of a CRT. I'm still learning the different mods and things that I can do with a GameCube to make it awesome. The reason I wanted to get it was to be able to play Link's Awakening on my TV, but then Link's Awakening was announced for the Switch. But there's other there's other games that I want to be able to play on the TV from the Game Boy. So playing the Game Boy on TV was the original reason that I that I dug it out of the garage. But I'm finding that there's there's other interesting things I can do, like playing Pikmin, for example, which is awesome. And so I'm I'm putting together a list of some of the the tinkerings you can do with your GameCube, and I just posted a link to that, and it links out to like all this other stuff, like these HDMI adapters and whatnot. So if you've got a GameCube hanging around in the garage, boy, you I got the blog post for you. Yeah, I have a GameCube in my office. I got it when my dad passed away. He he kind of hoarded game systems, <laughs> and so. Uh... He had a bunch of older ones, and that's the one I wound up with. And so I might have to check that out. Yeah, please uh, chat me up about it because I'm over the next couple of weeks, I've ordered a couple of different things from a couple of different companies, and I'm going to figure out how to do this and that. So I'd love to geek out with you about it. Yeah, well, and I also need to figure out what GameCube games I actually want because the games that he had for it were, they weren't the games that I really would like to have for it, I guess. <laughs> so. I definitely say Pikmin. Pikmin is a wonderful family game. It's only one player, but it's really fun. And Super Monkey Ball. It's basically an ad. It's like the like the Tony Hawk PS1 game you got when you bought a meal at Taco Bell. It's kind of like that, except you did have to pay for it. But it's uh, it's it's actually quite fun little party game to play with with the fam. Nice. All right, I'm going to jump in here with just one pick. Upon recommendation from a friend of mine in the Ruby community, Lori Olson, who actually has a course on Ruby Motion. If you're interested in building mobile apps with Ruby, we did an episode with her and I wound up chatting with her a little later. She recommended a book called For Love of Mother Not. It's a kind of a fantasy science fiction novel. It's by Alan Dean Foster. I guess he's got a whole bunch of uh, books with these characters in them. I enjoyed it. I listened to it on Audible. 
And uh, yeah, so I'm going to pick that book. Surma, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, and this is going to be all, I, I feel a bit nerdy doing that, but I'm going to pick the, the WebAssembly spec. Uh, people who've, who know my blog know that I'm uh, digging a lot of WebAssembly and enjoying it a lot. What I want to say is that the WebAssembly spec seems very long, but only because it is repeated four times over. Once for how to execute it, once for how to validate it, once for the text representation, and once for the binary representation. If you only read the text representation, you will see that it's actually very easy to understand. And it, it is kind of cool because I always found writing assembly by hand kind of scary if you look into like x86 tutorials. But the WebAssembly virtual machine is actually so beautifully designed and so simple that I found it fun to write an assembly-like language and have been doing that for a bit. It really teaches you how low-level machines work and what the actual capabilities of WebAssembly are. And I found, found it really enlightening. And if you are that kind of person, I recommend that uh, you give that a try because there's lots of tooling. You can just run it in your browser, browser or Node. You don't need any weird machines or, or emulators. Yeah, I had fun doing that. Very cool. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks for coming, Surma. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, we will uh, wrap this one up. We'll be back later this week or next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.